Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite composers. As you know, if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, I have many favorite composers, and a lot of them happen to be Russian. I don't know why that is. I just really gravitate a lot towards the Russian composers of the 19th and the 20th century. People like Stravinsky and Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky. And I think a lot of people love Tchaikovsky. If you've ever seen The Nutcracker, then you probably like Tchaikovsky. But today I'm going to be talking about one of his more serious compositions. Not that The Nutcracker isn't serious, but it's more lighthearted in nature. And Tchaikovsky himself was a little bit frustrated that his ballet was more popular than his more serious symphonies, even though The Nutcracker is an absolute masterpiece, and I'm sure he knew that. But an extremely talented composer like Tchaikovsky is always concerned with the reception of his more serious compositions, because compositions like his symphonies and his big piano works and his piano concertos, those are definitely written for posterity. He wants to be taken seriously when critics listen to this music. So he was pretty concerned with how his symphonies were received. And out of his six symphonies, I would have to say that his sixth one is definitely his best. But today we're going to be talking about his fifth symphony, which is also a very great symphony, probably his most popular symphony out of all six. It's a little bit flawed in that Tchaikovsky himself was disappointed with the last movement. After listening to it, he thought it to be a little bit bombastic and showy, and a lot of his critics agreed with that. But usually, when you listen to a symphony, the most important and the most impressive movement, the one that's musically the most interesting, is usually the first movement, only because the first movement is in sonata form, and the composer is really trying to impress his audience with his knowledge of classical forms. That's not to say that the other movements are of an inferior quality. It's just that traditionally, the first movement is in sonata form, and it, it affords the composer a lot of opportunity to show off his compositional chops. Because when you're a romantic composer like Tchaikovsky in the 19th century, writing in a traditional classical form, the kind of form that people like Beethoven, Haydn, and Mozart would use, you really have to show how you can develop a theme uh, actually, more than one theme, because in sonata form, there's definitely at least two themes. So you're not just showing off your technique, your command of the basic elements of music, like melody, harmony, and rhythm, but you're also showing your command of a large structural form, like sonata form, where you're really faced with organizing the temporal aspect of a composition, how you introduce the themes, how you change keys, the amount of time that you spend on those themes, how you transition between the themes, how you develop the themes, how you bring the themes back in an interesting way, and how you resolve all the tension that you set up in the first part of the piece. If you've listened to any of season one of Doctor Music, I spoke about sonata form in episode 17 of that season. So if you'd like to, you can review that episode, but let me just do a quick review. Sonata form has three main parts. First is the exposition, and the exposition usually has two themes, although it could have more than two themes. And the second theme always modulates to a different key to set up tension. Many times that key is 
the dominant, the chord that's associated with tension. After that, there's a development section, which develops one or more of those themes, and then a recapitulation. And the big change in the recapitulation is that all of the themes tend to be in the home key. So that resolves a lot of the tension that's been set up in both the exposition and the development. And then a lot of times it ends with a coda. Now there's a lot of variations on this scheme because as sonata form evolved, the presentation of the various sections became more fluid. As composers wanted to experiment a little bit more with the form, but the basic elements were always there. There are some pieces, for instance, where the development section is very, very long. That's in keeping with the romantic aesthetic of taking you on a long adventure and keeping you away from that home key as long as possible. And in other cases, sometimes the coda, which is really supposed to be just an ending to the piece, turns out to be quite long as well. And as we'll see in Tchaikovsky's first movement of his Fifth Symphony, he has kind of like a concluding theme or a cadential theme. And it's really very simple because it just goes down a fifth, the interval of a fifth. That's his cadential theme, but it becomes very important. So just because it's not a main theme doesn't make it any less important. So let's see how all this works. I'm going to play for you the very beginning of the symphony. This is Eugene Ormandy conducting the Philadelphia Orchestra, and this is a Sony classical CD. kind of a somber and mysterious beginning. The symphony is in E minor, and the theme that you just heard, the very first theme, is the most important theme because it keeps coming back in the rest of the symphony in movements two, three, and four. This is an example of cyclic form. So this symphony is using cyclic form because there's a theme that keeps coming back. Now, a couple things about that theme. It's in E minor. The very first note of the melody starts on the middle note of the triad, the third. So this is E minor. Here's the root. Here's the third. And here's the fifth. And Tchaikovsky begins his melody on the third, which is a G, like this. next part starts on the fifth of the triad, which is a B, like this. And then he does a descending scale, starting with E, and the scale ends up on the very first note of the symphony, the G, like this. That's a six-note scale, and then he does it again. So even though the theme is in E minor, Tchaikovsky is definitely emphasizing G in the melody, and that becomes important. And the reason it's important right now is because by emphasizing the third of the chord instead of the root, that creates some tension. 
Remember, it's an E minor, so instead of emphasizing E, he's emphasizing G, and that creates some tension. The other interesting thing that I'd like to mention has to do with Tchaikovsky's choice of orchestration. When he orchestrates that melody, he doesn't have one, but two clarinets playing the theme. And you might say, well, maybe because he wanted a little bit louder? No, that's not the reason. Now, this gets uh, pretty complicated, and I can't get into it. It has to do with the harmonic series. The harmonic series are a set of notes that are fractional proportions of the main note that you play on a musical instrument. So that if you play a C, for instance, on any musical instrument, there are overtones over that based on acoustical properties of the instrument. Now, you can't actually hear these overtones, but they're there. And one of the first mathematicians to ever prove this is our friend Pythagoras, who's famous for the Pythagorean theorem. Now, these overtones actually define the acoustical quality of an instrument, and you can actually access these overtones with different techniques, depending on the instrument that you're playing. On a woodwind instrument, like the clarinet, you do something called overblowing. When you overblow an instrument, you can access some of those overtones. Now, it turns out that when you overblow on a flute, you can get access to a note an octave above whatever the note that you're playing. Whereas if you overblow on a clarinet, you get something a little bit higher. You get an octave and a fifth, otherwise known as a twelfth. And the reason why that's important is because when you have two clarinets playing in unison, in other words, they're playing exactly the same note at the same time, it's because that clarinets overblow at the twelfth that you get a darker tone when two of them are playing at the same time. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't happen when two flutes are playing at the same time. So Tchaikovsky knew this. He knew that having two clarinets play at the same time is going to produce a much darker tone than you would with an instrument like the flute. And the reason for that is precisely because of the overtone series, because when you overblow on the clarinet, you get an octave and a fifth, and that actually determines the tone of the clarinet. So any lesser composer might have started with one clarinet playing that melody, but Tchaikovsky was a very careful orchestrator. He knew what kind of sound he would get out of two clarinets playing in unison. Now remember, that was the first theme of the symphony. It serves as the cyclic theme because it keeps coming back. Now we're going to hear the first principal theme of the symphony. This is the theme that you would expect in sonata form. Usually sonata forms have two themes, a first principal theme and then a secondary theme. So now we're going to hear the first principal theme.
And at the very end of that passage, you were listening to kind of a bridge that leads to this cadential theme that I was talking about. I'm going to play for you pretty soon. Now, let me just ask you a question. I'm going to play the first few notes of that theme. One of them is incorrect because the first note is incorrect. Which one did Tchaikovsky do? Here's the first choice. And here's the second choice. Okay, so in the first choice, the first two notes went like this. In the second one, it went like this. Which one do you think Tchaikovsky did? Well, a lot of people actually think it was the first one. But actually, it was the second. Now, why is that important? Because any other composer would have chosen the first option. But because he chose the second option, that creates more tension because that very first note is not in the tonic triad. Remember, the tonic triad is the key of the piece. If we're in the key of E minor, the tonic triad happens to be E, G, B. But that very first note that I played was a C, which is not in the tonic triad. And what does that do? That creates tension. And that's just an example of a decision that Tchaikovsky made that any other composer probably would not have made, but it really adds to the flavor of that melody. Now, as that melody went along, Tchaikovsky does a tonicization of G major. What does that mean? It means he temporarily sets up the key of G major, just for a few measures. Why is that important? Because remember, the very first theme of the symphony, the cyclic theme, focused on G. And G is actually related to E minor. G major is the relative of E minor. That means that they both have the same key signature. They both have one sharp in their key signatures. And G major becomes important when I start talking about the secondary theme, which we haven't gotten to yet. Now, I don't know if you remember, but in the middle of that theme, there was a part that went like this. Now, that rhythm that I just played at the end that becomes the important cadential theme at the end of this first theme. Now remember, a cadential theme is like an ending theme. So the theme that we just heard, if you call that theme A, this is like the cadential theme to theme A. So let's listen to that. So that was simply bum 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 and that rhythm again he got from theme A. So so far we had the cyclic theme at the very beginning of the symphony which he uses in the other movements, then we had the principal theme A, then we had a bridge passage, and then we had this cadential theme. Now, what key is that cadential theme in? It's in D major. Why is that important? D major is the dominant of G. 
And remember, we've been emphasizing G. G was emphasized melodically at the very beginning of the symphony. And then in theme A, he does a tonicization of G major. In other words, he briefly changes the key to G major. And now we have the dominant, not of the key of the entire symphony. The entire symphony is in E minor. We have the dominant of the relative of that key. The relative of E minor is G major. And so this sets up quite a lot of tension because we are in a pretty foreign key right now. And that becomes the key of theme B, which traditionally is a more lyrical theme. Not always, but a lot of times the second principal theme, theme B, is more lyrical in nature. And this one definitely is. Let's listen to it. Tchaikovsky really knows how to warm your heart. He knows how to serenade you, doesn't he? Now, there's a couple things about the ending of that beautiful theme. When he gets to the cadential material, remember, when I say cadential, that means ending material. When he gets to that, you hear bum 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 Well, that is exactly theme A, the principal theme. And then you hear bum 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 bum. That was the cadential theme for theme A. So he's bringing it back at the end of theme B. And this is something that a lot of composers like to do. They like to tie up the piece with a nice, neat little ribbon by bringing back a theme that was used previously in the piece. And it turns out that that cadential theme, that simple rhythm that goes bum, 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 he uses that a lot in the development section. So it's no accident that that cadential theme is used at the ending of theme A and theme B because it becomes important in the rest of the symphony. Speaking of the development section, let's listen to a little bit of that so you get a good appreciation of how Tchaikovsky is able to juggle and combine all of these themes.
that wasn't the entire development section, but I'm sure you noticed how Tchaikovsky combined two themes. The principal theme, theme A, da 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 and also the cadential theme, da-da-da-da. And he also does what a lot of composers like to do. He likes to play around with little fragments or cells derived from the melody. Remember theme A went like this. He likes to play around with that rhythm, da-da-da, because he does that over and over again. And, of course, the cadential theme, ba-ba-ba-ba, he really milks that. And those two simple rhythms, da-da-da, and also da-da-da-da, they provide a lot of excitement for this part of the piece. And the development is supposed to be very exciting because there's a lot of tension, and it has to be resolved somehow, and that resolution is the return of the first part of the piece, in other words, the return of the exposition, and that's called the recapitulation, because it recaps what happened in the beginning. But not exactly. There's always changes in the recapitulation, and just like in the development section, the composer has to find new ways to make it a little bit different, and not just a rehash of what we heard in the exposition. One thing that he or she has to do, remember when the second theme modulates? Remember the second theme was in D major, and I told you that D major is the dominant of G, and G is the relative major of the original key of the piece, E minor. Well, that was to create more tension, but in the recapitulation, you want to resolve some of that tension. So the second theme, instead of being in a foreign key like that, it's going to be something closer to the home key. And what Tchaikovsky does is Instead of having the second theme in the home key of E minor, he does it in E major. And E major and E minor are called parallels. They're called parallels because the same tonal center, the same tonic, in other words, E, but you're changing the mode. And Tchaikovsky does that because his second theme was in the major mode, so he keeps his second theme in the major mode, but it's in E major because E is the tonal center of this movement. But the entire movement does not end in E major. Let's listen to the very ending. That ended just as ominously as it began, with low strings, a bassoon, and the timpani. It's a really strikingly dark ending to this movement when he goes right back to E minor, just the way he began. Well, like my other episodes, I hope you enjoyed this analysis, because when I listen to music, I just don't want to appreciate that it's a masterpiece, but also why it's a masterpiece. So that's my hope. By talking about great pieces of music like this, it illuminates your listening experience. And I hope you tune in next time because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.